I think at times we are a vengeful nation, uh, if you look over the course of American history. But in some cases, much like us going in and hunting down and killing bin Laden, those things need to be done. Welcome back to The Live Drop. In this episode, we go to Lebanon with Fred Burton. He's one of the foremost authorities on security and terrorism in the world. He oversees global security developments at Stratfor Consulting, and he served as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department for 14 years. And while with the Diplomatic Security Service, he was on the hostage locator task force in Lebanon in the early 1980s, an experience which led to his most recent book, Beirut Rules, about the kidnap and murder of legendary CIA chief of station, William Buckley. Listen in for an interesting discussion of Lebanon in the early 80s, and Fred tells us, what are the Beirut Rules? Begin transmission now. About a third of the way into the book, or maybe halfway in, this character appears named Fred Burton. It reminded me of the time I was flying cross-country once, and I fell asleep, and somebody woke me up sitting next to me, and it was an old friend of mine, but he was also the pilot of the plane. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it sort of threw me for a little bit of a loop. And that was that was what, what it seemed like to me. So um, not only did it kind of draw me into this, this story, that it was actually real and that it happened, but um, really adds to your credibility. So I thought that was cool. Well, thanks so much, Mark. I, uh, you know, I had the benefit uh, where I was in the wrong place at the wrong time to to be able to work on... Uh, the hostage problem when all the Americans were held captive in Lebanon. And uh, of course, our mission at the time was to find Bill Buckley, who was the CIA station chief. And we figured if we could find Bill Buckley, we could find all the other Americans, the journalists that were held captive. And But in, in those days, Mark, I mean, you know from your military experience, uh, if if you lack the human intelligence, the inability to have sources on the ground to tell you where these individuals were located. Uh, Beirut was no man's land for us. It might as well have been behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, it, the inability to just operate there was just so frustrating. So I, I always believe that, uh, you know, Bill Buckley was uh, the, the kind of men that ran towards danger. His entire career was one of those. I mean, you know from your military background that people like that are unique. There, there's brave women, brave men and women that do that all the time. But a guy like Bill Buckley begins right out of high school in Korea, and uh, his entire career was just racing towards danger. Yeah, he was. Uh, he had quite a background. I mean, special forces. I mean, he, then he was recruited by the recruited by the agency, and then he went back into special forces in Vietnam. But I, I thought with. Uh, with William Buckley in particular, that he was someone who seemed very reliant on um, routine. That seemed a little bit military. It seemed like that could have been his weakness. I also thought this book was kind of about was kind of about tradecraft, even though you don't really betray any tradecraft in this book. And I was just wondering how how did his how did his capture kind of change security and the way people looked at security for uh, intelligence and journalists going forward. It was huge, Mark, uh, meaning uh, after Bill was kidnapped, uh, this was subsequent to the first U.S. embassy bombing when Bill goes in to kind of stand up U.S. intelligence operations in Beirut. He lived off compound because the nature of the business was such that he had to be able to get out to meet with sources and to visit with liaison services. So there was inherent risk with him living off compound. So that's one of the challenges. And 
The other aspect was when, of course, when Bill is kidnapped as the station chief, he has visibility into every operation that the CIA and the DOD was running in Lebanon during that time period. So um, the world changed from a tradecraft perspective after Bill was kidnapped. That's when all of us started going through hostage debriefing training, uh, modified SEER training. That's where uh, we pulled all the CIA people off compound and put them behind the walls at the embassy. And then we started to create these shooters that would accompany all the CIA station chiefs. It was really one of those pivotal moments that kind of changed the, the trajectory of how you protect personnel overseas, especially in a hostile environment. It's it seemed like uh I mean everybody was just was was vulnerable in Lebanon. I mean journalists they it seemed like they they wanted to kidnap the like a, a cast of characters and have this kind of what they called the uh the the Beirut Bazaar or, yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Wanted. Um maybe could you just set set for me um just set the stage in Lebanon. I mean there was a civil war in 1975 um you know, there was the Jordanian civil war in which a lot of Palestinians moved into um, Tyre and southern Lebanon, uh, 82 the Israel invades. Can you just sort of set the stage for this place? It just seems like a location where there was, it was completely divided. It was tribal, it was clannish, it was family. Uh, there were external, you know, forces trying to influence things like the Iranians. So could you just help me set the stage? Absolutely. Uh, Beirut in uh, the early 1980s was almost like uh, the, the infamous Casablanca movie with Humphrey Bogart, uh, where you had this marriage and merging of every friendly and hostile intelligence service in the world. And Beirut was the center of gravity for geopolitics, terrorism, for espionage. Uh, you had uh, this playground where everybody was engaged in reporting to someone. And uh, it was unlike any other. And then, of course, we were back in Washington watching the emergence of this growing terrorism threat from an organization we knew as the Islamic Jihad Group. And we suspected that they were Hezbollah, and we suspected that they were under Iranian control. But when they first started to emerge, we really did not know. We used to remember, these are also the days, Mark, when we don't have the internet, we don't have cell phones. Uh, we're still operating off typewriters in many ways and three by five index cards to kind of catalog people. So it was just a different time frame with technology as well as the inability to recruit personnel that could help you make sense of the problem. And the thing about Bill Buckley is he wittingly goes into this environment after the first embassy bombing in 1983, where the entire CIA station is devastated and our eyes and ears of this area that was so critical for national security were lost. And so Bill raises his hand and says, I'll go to stand up U.S. intelligence operations in Lebanon. And then as a 55-year-old man, he's kidnapped. 
So he's actually in captivity when the second U.S. embassy bombing occurs. It just seems so complicated there. I mean, there's Alawites, Druze, Christians, uh, the Palestinians from Jordan, they were Sunnis. Yeah, and the Palestinians, uh, in many ways for us, were a lifeline in the early 80s, which is kind of a fascinating twist to this entire chaos that we were living in, because you had remnants of the old Black September organization, which were Fatah, that were basically Yasser Arafat's, the PLO's intelligence arm, they were actually supporting and helping the Americans during this time period, which was just amazing. So they go from carrying out the Munich massacre in 1972, killing the Israeli athletes in Munich, to becoming an almost legitimate security apparatus and government inside of Lebanon. And they were actually helping the Americans on the run-up to the first U.S. embassy bombing. So uh, it, it was the nature of chaos where, um, you know, y- you had this environment where everybody was reporting to somebody and mostly everybody you were talking to were double agents or triple agents and everybody was on everybody's payroll. And so then you have the Iranians out there that were the puppet masters and they were using the Islamic Jihad organization and Hezbollah as a tool of foreign policy to exercise pressure in an asymmetric kind of capacity on the United States because they could not beat us on the battlefield. They couldn't take on the United States Army, but they sure as hell could kick our rear ends when it came to the utilization of these terrorist organizations to drive us out of Lebanon. Yeah, there's a couple of things there's something else in your book that sort of ruined it for me is I really, really used to like the Peugeot 504 for some reason. <laughs> I just thought it was the perfect car. <laughs> and, um, but but some, there's been some talk, and you mentioned it in your book, that that was actually the, the, the first um, kind of use of suicide bombing on a large scale. That, that ni- I think it was the 1983 bombing of the American embassy. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, if you envision, we just recently went through the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. And if you can envision just the collapse of that building, that's exactly what the first embassy bombing looked like. Just the sheer scope and size of these vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices that this group called the Islamic Jihad Organization were utilizing just overwhelmed us. We had never seen anything like that at a scale before. And then when they hit us a second time there, it was just shocking. It was almost like the World Trade Center the first time in 93, and then they hit us again in 2001. So, you know, the one takeaway from that is invariably we started to build embassies that were destruction-proof. So after the fall of the second U.S. embassy in 84, we started building embassies that you couldn't blow up. And it really changed not only how you protect intelligence officers when Bill Buckley was kidnapped, but it changed how we protect U.S. diplomatic facilities and military facilities around the globe, utilizing setback and distance because the one things we've, the, some of the things we found out in looking at the horrific car bombings there, uh, 
was that distance saves lives, and so do basics such as mylar, window film, 3M window film. So when the blast effect takes takes off, it doesn't sever arteries, and it holds windows intact. So it really changed forever how we defend U.S. diplomatic missions around the globe. So my, just a quick question about mylar. Is that that's the, not an adhesive? It's actually part of the construction of the glass. It is. Uh, 3M for many years had the patent on that, and uh, you, you put it like on a car window film. So when that blast effect takes off, it doesn't shatter and scatter that glass all over the place. We found out in looking at some of the victims and the embassy bombings that a lot of them, uh, I'm sad to say, just bled out because of flying glass and lacerations, besides the crushing effect of just mountains of concrete. And uh, the buildings, too, were not built towards U.S. specs or standards, meaning there was not a lot of rebar. Uh, It just did not have the codes that we have here in the United States that we've grown accustomed to. So uh, Hezbollah was brilliant with their target selection and with the construct of those devices. And and if you fast forward many years to Oklahoma City, Mark, um, you know, I was at FBI headquarters at the time. And when that blast happened, we looked at the, 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 the federal building in Oklahoma City. We looked at the pictures of Beirut and we said, oh my goodness, this has to be Hezbollah. So mm-hmm. the modeling that we had, uh, now obviously we were wrong in Oklahoma City, but just the sheer modeling that the bomb techs put together for us showed a tremendous amount of similarities in just the size of the devices. I like in your book how you describe the explosives that were used, like, you know, Checkmate, Semtex, and, or RDX, I think was is, is an old one that was yeah. there. But uh, I thought the Oklahoma City bombing was mostly like the kind of slow-burning explosive with fertilizer and that. It was. It was ANFO. Uh, Oklahoma City was the ANFO uh, combination, which is uh, fertilizer and fuel oil. Uh, but the damage to the actual structure of that federal building was very similar, yeah, because it was driven right up to the front, and that's very similar to how Hezbollah studied and did the reconnaissance of our embassies. You know, there, there's a very specific attack cycle that uh, terrorist organizations follow. Uh, Hezbollah was the master of them, and they had conducted countless uh, pre-operational surveillance of our facilities and knew exactly at what point to hit it and where to bring that uh, device into the actual building. God, I'm glad they finally caught that. Magnia is how you pronounce his name? Yeah, Emad Magnia. Magnia. Yeah. I was I was um, sent to the Gulf War in 1991 and um, I was an engineer and they took, unit, they took troops from U.S. Army Europe and just kind of sent us over there to more or less wait for casualties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were pretty much there in reserve. And they set us up initially in these barges, these Aramco barges on the Persian Gulf. And then they had this great idea, like, well, let's put everybody in this place called Cobar Towers. Yeah. So we were, I remember being on like the eighth floor of the Cobar Towers and thinking, I don't know if this is a very good idea. You no. describe in your book, you describe in your book, the parking lot in the Northwest entrance. And I know that parking lot, that's where we used to have a formation, you know, and wow. I could just- I could picture it all kind of uh, going down there. But I remember thinking we're, we're kind of vulnerable several stories up in the air like this. Yeah, no doubt. Well, first, Mark, thank you so much for your service to our great nation. Uh, 
and uh, Cobar Towers. We, uh, I did not deploy on that one, but my office did go out to that. Uh, that I, was in 90, 96 when they were at That was in 96, yeah. Uh, you know, we had the 93, world, the first World Trade Center bombing was 93, and then Cobar Towers was 96. And, you know, that, again, is just a study in disaster and, and how effective uh, these VBIDs can be. Um, and, and also just the inability to uh, have intelligence to tell you what's coming. And that's the one thing as I put together all my books that, you know, there's a couple things you always take away from these cases and you really can break them down on a simplistic level in many ways. And uh, it boiled down to a lack of human intelligence uh, we didn't know the truck bombs were coming. We didn't know where Bill Buckley was. We didn't have the sources. And then secondly, a failure of tactical analysis, meaning that invariably after these disasters, we could find the infamous uh, you know, needles in the haystack to tell us that we had pending prob- problems or the frog in the boiling pot, but we couldn't find them at the time. You know, The haystack mm-hmm. was just too big. Yeah, I want to get into that that hunt that you were a member of. It's interesting that the team was called the Hostage Location. It was called the uh, HLTF, which was the Hostage Location Task Force. Which I thought was pretty realistic. I mean, you had to find him first. I mean, it didn't have a name like that, you know, the Hostage Rescue, the Hostage uh, Recovery. I mean, there was enough enough trouble just, just trying to find him. I mean, Mark, I can't tell you. I mean, I feel so sorry for these hostages that are still being taken today around the globe. And we're so much better as a nation predicated on our the intelligence community today than we ever were in the 80s. But uh, in, the, in the 80s, we did not have the satellites. We did not have the technology. We didn't have the tools. And then we lacked the human assets. So literally, the HLTF, the Hostage Location Task Force, was assigned inside the CIA's counterterrorism center. And uh, in essence, there was a handful of us, uh, usually less than five. And it combined uh, with combined assets from the CIA, the FBI, uh, the State Department, and the DOD. And it was usually the usual suspects, the same three to four people. And we would gather together and try to look for new inroads to try to find the hostages. We would pour over satellite imagery. But in those days, I mean, my goodness, what you see today on Google Earth is so much better. We we were looking at rooftops. Uh, we would try to marry that up with fragmented intelligence reports that we think the hostages were in a six-story building and in the southern suburbs of Beirut. Well, you know, my goodness, that's like trying to say, well, there's somebody missing in Los Angeles. Where do you begin? So, um, you know, we were constantly struggling just for raw intelligence to try to make sense where these hostages were. And then we were consistently struggling with uh, trying to develop sources that could tell us where they were. So we were consistently just, you know, pushing a boulder up a hill trying to find these hostages. And, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to also tell this story, Mark, uh, was, you know, I, I the older you get, we all suffer a little bit of regret and and guilt, meaning, you know, here was a man who gave his life for our nation, beginning as a high school graduate in the Korean War, where he's awarded the Silver Star. And then he comes back 
and he, he has this just history of service. And he was special. And we did everything we could to try to find him in that period of time, but we failed. And I think about that all the time. I think about that pretty much every day, that he deserved more. And um, I regret that mightily. If there's anything that I could do to turn back the clock, uh, I wish we could have applied some of the technology and solutions we have today on that time frame, if we could step back in time, because I'm, I'm damn sure that the resources that the U.S. military have today and the CIA could have been successful in finding Bill Buckley during that time period. We just did not have the technology. Uh, we did not have the global footprint. And the intelligence community had not matured, predicated on our endless wars that we have and the, the, the lessons we've learned in hunting down bad guys you know, from Afghanistan to Iraq and elsewhere. I just want to ask you how you would do it differently now. I mean, without giving out any, you know, any valuable information, would you, would you go at it differently from a, from a procedural or systematic standpoint? Absolutely. What I would do again, if I could turn back the clock is I would use uh, DOD assets uh, combined with uh, CIA ground branch personnel uh, and, we would go into Beirut. Uh, we would systematically start looking for uh, the hostages. Uh, we would set up uh, much better communications protocols. We would use much better uh, NSA and, and SIGINT capabilities. Uh, we would uh, utilize uh, better human asset and tactical analysis capabilities. Uh, we would work hand in glove with the Israelis. Uh, as best we possibly could, you know, leveraging the Mossad assets and the IDF footprint and, and longstanding uh, ability to operate there. And once, more importantly, once we had a location that we could narrow down, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, Delta, uh, JSOC, and or SEAL Team 6 could go in there uh, and rescue Bill Buckley and the rest of the hostages. So, I, I mean, you and I know their capabilities are phenomenal today. And uh, I, I have a high degree of success that they would be able to find Bill Buckley today, much like we hunted down bin Laden. I mean, you work for Stratfor. You're the chief of security there. You're also a security consultant. Um, my dog, he's tapping in the background. He, I call him Fred Astaire. He just, his nails are long and makes a lot of noise. But he has a chip inside of him. Right, that if he's lost, somebody can refer him back to me. That's awesome. Uh, is there is there is there anything that um, maybe high value personnel would consider doing, like so you could find someone like Bill, like William Buckley in the future? Absolutely, I think that's one of the technology advancements that we have today. Which you know, GPS during that time period was uh, very fragmentary. It wasn't very good, to be blunt. Uh, because we didn't have the satellites to be able to triangulate in on locations. But today, you very easily could have embedded a chip uh, in either Bill Buckley's belt buckle, his briefcase, and his heel. Uh, you could his femur? His femur, if you really – you know, Bill would probably be the kind of guy that say, yeah, go ahead, put it in. But uh, uh, most people – I know I would have been one of them to say, well, let me just put it on my belt. I don't want you – I don't want the medical services uh, putting anything inside of me. Yeah, this book, um, 
it was cool. It also reminded me of David St. Ignatius' book, Agents of Innocence. And I. That's a great read. Yeah, it's wonderful, isn't it? I saw some of his characters pop up. It was funny when I was reading his book, I was using Google Earth to kind of cruise down the street to see where he was in the cafes where he was meeting people. And uh, that's pretty yeah, cool. I mean, the capacity we have now for looking things up is pretty amazing. I mean, his main character had a relation, had a, um, like a human relationship with, um, I think he was a member of. A Black September. Yes. Yeah. Ali, Has- Ali Hassan Salome, a guy who I I have a picture of uh, his uh, assassination on my desk in the office. Uh, but yeah, that that was Bob Ames, who was, right. the C- you know, the CIA uh, officer that had that relationship with uh, Ali Hassan Salome called the Red Prince. Bob Ames was killed in the first attack. Right. Bob uh, was... Um, uh, kind of like Bill Buckley was the kind of guy that was a can-do man, uh, very action-oriented. Uh, he had uh, the relationship with uh, Ali Hassan Salome uh, of the Black September organization. And you see, that gets back into this weird space that the intelligence community consistently operates in. Here you had this relationship with uh, Salome, who was the architect of the Munich Massacre of the 11 Israeli athletes, along with a range of other killings of Israeli officials and Israeli intelligence officers for a long period of time. And when I first became an agent, uh, my old grizzly boss said, look, Fred, if you want to understand terrorism, you need to study Hezbollah and you need to study the Black September organization. And I've been a student of that organization, you know, since that time period. And it's a fascinating group because their tempo of attacks during this short window of time far exceeded anything Al-Qaeda has ever done to us. They were so volatile in such a short period of time. And if uh, your listeners want to good, get a good uh, film out of that, uh, Spielberg's film Munich is a good um, example of the Black September organization. I thought there was sort of an irony in your book that Magnea's um – you know, he sort of met his end with this kind of very high-tech explosive, you know, that was shaped just perfectly, kind of customized customized for him. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in justice. And uh, there's no doubt justice was served when uh, Magnia, who was the architect of the embassy bombings, the Marine Corps barracks bombings, the the death of Billy Bill Buckley, the kidnapping of all the hostages. I mean, the man had more U.S. and Israeli blood on his hands than Engels, any single terrorist until Osama bin Laden came along. So when Magnia was assassinated, uh, you know, there there was no love lost uh, on my part. William Buckley just seems like someone from, he's part of our tribe. Is there a, and I think you have a quote in your book about it, um, about an Arab proverb about someone who taking taking revenge waiting 40 years to take advantage and then saying, why so soon? Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, is there like a, is there a bias to contend with um, for avenging something like that? Is it something to, to consider as well? I think it's a good question, uh, Mark, but you know, I'm an old law and order guy and I firmly believe in the eye for an eye. And I learned early on from studying these terrorist groups and, and, doing hijacking investigations and assassination investigations that 
if you can remove that tactical commander from the battle space, if you can capture a Ramsey Yosef, the mastermind of the first World Trade Center bombing, if you can kill, capture a bomb maker, you're going to save lives. And when I look at a guy like Magnia, who again had caused so many American deaths, to me, justice needed to be served. And I think at times we are a vengeful nation, uh, if you look over the course of American history. But in some cases, much like us going in and hunting down and killing bin Laden, those things need to be done. I was just concerned. I was thinking more about operationally. Is that something you have to kind of keep in check? I mean, if you are going after these bad guys, like after reading this this book, um, I remember when William Buckley was was captured. I was in college at the time, and and even I was in Mainz when Terry Anderson was released in Wiesbaden in nineteen eighty eight. And I remember just this gut wrenching feeling every time you thought about it, and then to read that you know Magnia was sitting around sipping tea with Suleimani. <laughs> yeah. I, it really gave me a different perspective on things. I wanted to, I just wanted to go after everybody Mugnia had had tea with, <laughs> you know, <laughs> at, at the end of reading this. And um, that was just an interesting sensation. And that, that idea that um, someone, someone is suffering and you can't do anything about it. And the, the helplessness that, that you, that you feel about that. It's, um, it just must have been excruciating for someone like you who was actually working on that case. Oh, my goodness. It was so frustrating. I mean, we would fly over to Wiesbaden, Germany, our small little team, uh, and we would debrief the hostages You know, after we brought them out of Lebanon on a special air mission. And, of course, most of these hostages you know, had not had medical or dental care for years. And then we did a little psychological assessment uh, at the time to see how bad they really were. Uh, some of them were just extraordinarily great observers. Like uh, my old friend, Charlie Glass, I'm still in touch with Charlie. Charlie was an ABC News correspondent, and he actually was fortunate enough to have escaped. And he was very observant to the point that he knew which way the window swung. I mean, it was just kind of a tactical operator's blueprint if you sat down. Uh, but he was a journalist. He was used to, you know, uh, watching and, and recording facts. And and that was one of his sanity measures was just to maintain a very good discipline on facts. So in the course of debriefing these hostages, you know, we learned that Bill Buckley had died in captivity. And I got to tell you, Mark, at the time, it was just like you could suck the air out of the room because we we learned two things early on in our in our debriefings. We learned that Bill had died and he had died a horrible death after being tortured. And we did not know what happened or where his body was. And then we also learned that all these hostages were together. At at for a long period of time, we were operating that they were being held at twenty-five different sites. And then we realized that, oh my goodness, if they were all together, we could probably rescue them. But now we get back to the same problem. We got to find them. And that to me was just so frustrating that uh, we just lacked that inability to, to locate them. I mean, there was suspicion that they were being held in that barracks compound. Yeah, the Sheikh Abdullah barracks in the, uh, in the south of Lebanon. Uh, and, and this was another very frustrating point. And you know, just from your military experience, our information was always days or weeks old. We would get a report that 
you know, we think the hostages were moved in a convoy 30 days ago. You know, well, what are you going to do with that other than like catalog it and plot it on a map or in a timeline and hope that they would go back there again at some point in time? So part of our debriefing process, and we really got quite good at debriefing hostages, and, and that formula is still being used today, but it's much more sophisticated, is much like you and I talking over uh, Zoom, we started to break down things such as backdrops, uh, sound uh, we started listening for things we couldn't hear before, like your dog scratching on the floor, uh, children playing, uh, were airplanes taking off or landing? Could we hear car horns when we would get a hostage video? Or when we got a hostage photograph, we would marry it up to one from when that person was still in good health and in the service. And then we would take it to the CIA docs and the FBI docs and say, hey, how do they look? How much weight have they lost? So we really started to to look at this and it created a real kind of a science to us down to something um, as uh, strange as it sounds, psycholinguistic analysis. Because once we started getting communiques from this organization called the Islamic Jihad Organization, we could marry up the communiques and look for similar patterns and try to determine if we had one author of these communiques or two. And then the light bulb went off our head at one point that, well, maybe there's the same cameraman that's videotaping all these hostages. Oh, wow. You are super intense film critics. Exactly. But uh, we were studying the backdrop. We were studying the sound. We were trying to look at the quality of the videotape. And then we were trying to draw some conclusions predicated upon that. And we got good at that. Now, unfortunately, it did not help us find them. But then once that hostage came out, we would say, okay, here's a picture of you, Charlie Glass. When your communique came in, where was this taken? What were you wearing? What were you eating that day? Were you chained to a radiator? How were you held? Tell me a little bit about the knots. Were you held on, you know, in, in handcuffs? So then that gave all the tactical planners, as you know, great granular data to try to figure out, uh, if we have to go in, which way do the doors swing? Those were the kinds of things that we were slowly building up over time, just just tremendous database on, on that kind of detail. Just unfortunately, we could never unleash JSOC to go do their job. You just mentioned Terry Anderson, that once he was back, he admitted, um, oh, my security was lax. My personal security was lax, which I thought was interesting. He really took um, like accountability for his own actions in a, in a way. And almost, you know, I don't want to say blamed himself, but he did take accountability for, you know, the precautions that he was taking at the time. What is the difference between, in your experience, between maybe journalists or, you know, trained operatives? Um, do they get the training that they need? Do they know what to look out for? I mean, obviously there was Daniel Pearl and that tragedy, but do journalists get the kind of training they need to protect themselves? I think today it's much better than it was in those days. In, in those days, you had uh, a very cavalier attitude. Uh, there was this feeling that I'm a journalist, that I won't be bothered until they started getting picked up. And Terry, of course, was held longer than any other American hostage in Lebanon. But then we had Charlie Glass. We had uh, some French and German reporters, if memory serves me right. We also had an Irish reporter, I believe, off the top of my head, 
uh, we had a whole hodgepodge of journalists because they were out and they were accessible and they were vulnerable. I think today, if you look at um, efforts like, for example, by the Daniel Pearl Foundation, and uh, they're doing great things with training of freelance journalists and giving them advice and consultation on how to look out for surveillance, you know, how to take care of yourself in some of these environments. So I do think it's much better today. And I know the formal news agencies that interview me at times, you know, the CNNs and the Foxes of the world, you know, they've got very established programs and security directors to keep tabs of their people and make sure they're as safe as they possibly can be. Why do you think that William Buckley compiled that list of his case officers and their their names? You mentioned that maybe a few days before he was he was taken. Do you have any 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 suspicions why that was done, why he did that or what happened to that three by five card? Well we suspect that that three by five card was in his briefcase at the time of his abduction which caused uh, the CIA to literally shut down everything in Lebanon during that time period, which is also, from an adversarial perspective, a brilliant move on the part of Hezbollah at the time. Remember, they've they've blown us up once. Now they have taken the CIA station chief, the eyes and ears of the U.S. intelligence community out of the picture, and they've got the list of every other CIA person operating there. I think it was just old school mindset on Bill's part, being the military man that he was, that he just wanted a list of his personnel and what they were doing, and a very similar that we all make lists. And that was just one of those things that he had with him, because I don't believe he ever suspected that this was going to happen to him, or at least nothing that I could find had evidence that he knew that he was going to be abducted that day. I, I think Bill was a soldier and knew the risk, but I do think that he was not foolish and that if he had very specific information or even just a gut feeling that uh, somebody was watching him, that he would have taken precautionary measures. So I just attribute that to, you know, the that's the pocket litter that, that, that goes with an intelligence officer at any given moment. And, and that's part of the damage that was done. I mean, your book's called The, the Beirut Rules. We, we know the Moscow rules. So I'm just wondering what, what would be the Beirut rules and how would they differ from the Moscow rules? Well, at least during the Cold War, there was a semblance of order between the KGB and the CIA where they would not never kill each other. They would never target each other. Yeah, they would do some diplomatic PNG, declaring personnel persona non grata, and they would certainly spy on each other. But they wouldn't do to each other what was happening in Beirut at the time. So Beirut rules uh, was a new rule that developed with adversaries such as Iran utilizing their asymmetric terrorist group to kidnap and kill American intelligence officers. So those were the Beirut rules. And that's not how the intelligence community typically operates around the globe. Everybody knows that everybody spies on each other. But if you're with the KGB and I'm with the CIA, I'm not going after you for the purposes of killing or hostage taking. In essence, what happened in Beirut during that time period is they were making up their own rules because it was just like the law of the jungle. And Iran took advantage of that. So rule number one of the Beirut rules is there are no rules. Right. <laughs> and, and rule number two is you make them up as you go along. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And if you have to kill, you kill. Mm -hmm. 
you write about General Hayden and his you know, cooperation with the Mossad. I mean, was there cooperation with the Mossad back then and, how, and is, has it changed now? We had a liaison relationship with the Israelis that uh, has always been very special. Un- unfortunately, they were suffering from the same phenomena that we were in that time period. They were laser focused on trying to find their missing Israeli uh, soldier by the name of Ron Arad. And so they were hunting for uh, Ron Arad. So from a cooperative standpoint, whenever we would debrief a hostage on a practical level, I would show a picture of Ron Arad to that hostage and say, did you ever see this man or were you ever held in captivity with this man? And all of the hostages we spoke to never saw Ron Arad. So we figured that Hezbollah had him held in a special facility or in a safe house somewhere, or perhaps even on another floor, we just never were able to develop any kind of positive leads as to his whereabouts or location. On a practical level, the Israelis also never gave us any tactical intelligence that would help us find the hostages. But we did have a sense of common mission to try to find each other, but both of us were just you know, ramming our heads against the wall. On a practical level, the, the intelligence communities do cooperate, meaning you're, regardless of administrations that come and go, you still have that working relationship, for example, between the U.S. and the Israeli Mossad, the U.S. and the Jordanian GID, uh, the U.S. and the British MI6. So that really uh, transcends administrations. So that intelligence collection still exists, but it's more fractured when you start looking at the politics of nation states. But I, uh, we have turned inward over during the past, uh, you know, Trump administration uh, to more of uh, an isolationist. However, I'm very confident that the intelligence community is still out there doing their job from a liaison to liaison perspective, uh, because I know we always did. And I worked for Republicans and Democrats you know, whoever was in the White House was so far up the flagpole that it really never affected me. I still just did my job. I was looking more. I was looking also at your um, at your background. You you know, you worked for the Diplomatic Security Service, uh, but then you've also had some. You know, on, on, you've worked on a global level and a national level, but you've also had some very kind of local act- activity. I mean, you were you're a member of. Um, I think a local rescue squad. Uh, you've you've gotten involved in some issues with the border in Texas, and I was just wondering about that. That was was that a specific shift that you made from you know government service on an international scale to to a more regional or local focus? Uh, well, I I believe in service, and uh, when asked, I'm going to try to help. And I, I started as a 17 year old volunteer with my local rescue squad, and then became a cop in my community and then became a a special agent. And so uh, I live in Austin, Texas. And, uh, you know, when the governor asked if I want to be on the the Border Security Council back when the the border situation was hot during the under the Perry administration, I said, sure, how can I help? Uh, Or when I was asked to come in and try to evaluate the Texas Department of Public Safety's efforts on intelligence and counterterrorism. So I, I just think that's the right thing to do. Uh, I'm on the Greater Austin Crime Commission here, and this is my city. I live here. So whatever I can do to help public safety is, you know, that's my past and that's my passion. I think it's important to give back. 
That's one of the things I like to try to do. You mentioned something about how when you were in Lebanon and you were getting information that was maybe two weeks or three weeks old. And it kind of reminds me now of how people are forced to think more like a detective about COVID-19 spread and the response where what's actually happening right now is the result of something that probably happened two weeks ago, you know, in trying to figure out this pandemic that people are going to start thinking differently about problems in general. I do. I think we're at a inflection point, uh, as you look upon uh, the future of the world in many ways. And uh, I would like to think that something like this pandemic is going to cause uh, a high degree of cooperation across the entire uh, bandwidth of not only the the public health agencies from around the globe, but the intelligence community as to how we look and track and monitor viruses. So um, I'm, I'm very optimistic. We're going to see some extraordinarily cool technology come out of this to uh, that we've always seen in these moments in time. I uh, really enjoyed your book. Is there any others that you would recommend, like on Lebanon or during that time? Uh, I would take a look at uh, my uh, my good friend Sam Katz has uh, written No Shadows in the Desert. It's actually released today. It's a story of uh, the Jordanian intelligence service battle with ISIS. Kai Bird's book, uh, The Good Spy, is a, is a great one. So what I would encourage... Um, you or your listeners to, to watch those. Fred, thank you very much for being on the live drop. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. That was my chat with Fred Burton. His book, Beirut Rules, is available now. Next week, we're going to go back to Berlin and find out about the secret unit detachment A from uh, author James Stakel. Also, uh, any suggestions that you might have, I can be found at Twitter at the live drop, Facebook at the live drop podcast, uh, Instagram, the live drop or the live drop at Gmail. Send me uh, an email or give me a message on Facebook and just let us know how we're doing. Everyone stay safe out there. Be careful. End of transmission.